And thanks for joining us for episode 9 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. My name is Matt, and joining me on today's cast is my co-host, Tiffany. Hello. And Dan. Hello, hello. Thank you all for joining us again, or if this is your first time, welcome. Remember that you can always chat with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers, or feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Also, if you use the Stitcher service, feel free to look for our episodes there, as we're now live on Stitcher. And stop on by the BGG Guild, number 2077, and give us your thoughts on the show. So for today's show, we're going to get into some news, we're going to do some Kickstarter Spotlight projects, and then we have a discussion today, we're going to talk about playing versus collecting. But we're going to kick off the show the way we always do, talk a little bit about what we've been playing. So what has everyone been up to? So last Thursday, we I had a little game night, and it was also trick-or-treat in my neighborhood. So we played some Halloween spooky-themed games, <laughs> the first one of which was Freedom on Freeze's Fearsome Floors, which is sort of a race game where you, you have four tokens that are your players, and you're trying to escape this dungeon, and as you're trying to escape, there's a monster chasing you all around the dungeon. Um, your tokens have different movement totals on them. On one side, it has, let's say, a six. So on the other, it'll have a one. Uh, so on your turn, you move your token six spaces in whichever direction you want. And then you flip it. So on the next turn, you can only move one. So there are some that have four on one side and three on the other. They always total seven. So you know how many movement points you're going to get each turn. And there are also some obstacles and blood pools and stuff that you can slide through. It's kind of fun in that way. And um, the monster, he comes out, He, you flip a tile, it says how many movement he is going to take. It's usually somewhere, I think, between 8 and 10, something like that. And he moves, he looks forward, he looks left, he looks right, and he'll move towards whoever he sees closest each time he moves. So you're trying to set yourself up so the monster is moving towards your opponents and not you. Cool. How'd everyone like it? I think everybody liked it but me. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Well, it's kind of like a take that game. So it's take that and that you'll set things up so you'll move and now the monster is going to find your opponent before you. But it's take that and I think my group is reluctant to play a game like that. So the only person they'll inflict that sort of behavior upon is me. Oh. So I'm I'm the only one they're comfortable screwing over. <laughs> so you got so I got frustrated. Yeah, I got a little picked on. That sounds cool. It took a little bit longer than I wanted a game like that to take. How long did it run you? It was probably close to an hour, really? I want to say. And that is the playing time of Board Game Geek, so I shouldn't have been surprised. But it's it's kind of a lighthearted game, so I just wanted it to take a little bit shorter. Yeah, it feels... I mean, I've never played it, but from the description, it sounds like eh, it feels a little long to me. Yeah. How about you? Well, we got in a couple of games this weekend. We actually had a good gaming weekend, which is the first in, in a little while just because we've been so busy. 
And one of the games that we actually picked up this weekend, Dan and I went over to the game store and he picked up Camel Up. And I was a little skeptical going into this game because I had heard some, you know, mixed reviews. I know it won Spieldischiaris, so clearly somebody thinks this game is good, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be right for us. But it was actually an awesome time. Uh, we played three games in one day, the day that we bought it. And it's just a, it's a lighthearted gambling game where you're, you know, you're taking chances on the camel races and rolling some dice. And it's got this cool little pyramid dice contraption. Um, it doesn't always work that efficiently, if I might add. It was a good time. We played three-player, four-player, and five-player on the same day and worked well with all that player count. And, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I can I can see why it won the award. Yeah, it's a party game for sure. I think if you're going into it with a mindset of looking at, for something a little bit more strategic or gamery, um, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go into it with the mindset of, hey, just going to have fun, roll some dice out of a wonky little pyramid and move these camels into positions of questionable looking positionness. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the right word, but the, camel, the, not even the camel's humps fit nicely together. We'll just put it that way. That yes. sounds worse than what Dan said, but <laughs> yes. Did you think when I play this, I like it best probably with four. How do you guys feel about it? I think four and five is a really good number. Um, I know at Gen Con we played it with like six, seven, and eight or something along those lines. And I didn't really care for that. There wasn't anything to do, really. You'd get like one act per leg. Yeah. And the rest of the time you're just watching. So I, I liked it with three and four because even if you chose to roll the die, which obviously gives your opponents a little bit more information on their next go around. I think with three, four, and even five to a certain extent, it was less of a detriment to you as far as being able to place a bet and, and guess correctly kind of thing. But with seven and eight, it's like a crapshoot, like literally. Yeah, you start to see with five players, I started to see um, some interesting decision-making because I didn't want to roll the dice all the time because I knew that I was there's going to be four people before I got to take my turn again in terms of placing bets and, and kind of benefiting from my roll. Um, it wasn't too bad, but there was a couple situations where I didn't really have anything else to do and I kind of just had to give my opponents a leg up. So I liked it with three. We had kind of a, a funny little game where the orange camel, which was last place the whole game ended up winning which was hilarious that's the best part about the game i know it was just it was so wild it was one of those things where it's like okay if all of these things work perfectly that we'll just get blindsided and, and orange will win the race and that's exactly what happened and it was fantastic but uh four seems to be a nice spot in terms of you know minimizing that party game feel it felt like a game that i was actually you know playing and and making some interesting decisions I couldn't imagine seven or eight players. I feel like you wouldn't do anything the whole game. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's just one big speculation fest. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was definitely a good time and I'm you know, I'm glad Dan picked it up and I think this is gonna easily hit the table a bunch more times. It plays so quick, it's so easy. Yeah, it's probably my most played game that I've bought this year. I was surprised by it too. Dan, what have you been playing? Um, so I got a chance to play with matt and steve uh we got in a game of battle merchants uh this is a game from gilhova and mini games and it's a uh it's a really cool 
it's like an, it's an economic game, but it has a fantasy theme overlay. So in the game, you take the role of battle merchants and you are crafting and supplying weapons to different fronts of this fantasy war, um, which involves the elves, the orcs, the dwarves, and the hobgoblins. And you don't take sides per se, but you're selling your different wares to each side of the war. Um, and the opponents are doing the same thing. And then, you know, once per season, you square off and see whose weapons kind of dominate in each battle. And you score points based on that. And most money at the end wins. You know, you're the greatest merchant of all time kind of thing. So it's, it's really cool. It's um, it's not overly complex, but it has some great decision making. Um, like I said, it's a, it's a very streamlined economic game. It's basically buy, sell, and you're really trying to optimize your your margin as far as your buy and sell. So there's different cards that allow you to buy things cheaper and sell things for more. So then, like I said, you're optimizing and getting the most uh, return on your investment there. So it's cool. It's And like I said, the fantasy theme, I think, makes it a little bit more approachable than a lot of other economic games, which is really cool. Um, for bringing in newer players to that style game. I think this is a really good, I don't want to say gateway, but gateway plus, I would say. I think it's right I think it's right above. I'd agree with that. I think this game's sneaky. It really is. Because Dan was saying that this is basically just an economic game, and I can see why he likes it, because he, you know, kind of thrives in that kind of dis- on that kind of decision-making. And I really enjoyed it for the fantasy theme. Now, I, I still like economic games as well, but I felt like I was... I could get into this game more because I'm building weapons, axes, and swords and things like that, and I'm selling them to both sides of a war. And you know, it's it's really cool thematically, and it's easy to to lean on that when the math gets too heavy, kind of thing. Like it's it's nice to have that to fall back on. It's got good theme for kind of a European, like I said, economics-driven game. It's um, it allows you to just kind of immerse yourself that way. Yeah. The other interesting part is that it's got that. Um, similar to something like Seasons, I guess, is my most notable comparison, but you can control the pace of the game, and that's really cool because basically you can slow things down and speed things up um, with pretty easily, actually, based on your decision-making. So someone who's not doing as well can try to slow things down and give themselves time to, uh, to catch up. And then, kind of like what Dan did when we played our game this weekend, you know, right before second-to-last turn of the game basically he decided to make a move that would actually add a turn or two to the game which took me which i i think i almost had the lead um but it gave him a chance to to make some really savvy moves and i think he pulled ahead for the win by making that decision so that was kind of cool to see in action you've described it perfectly it was so savvy very savvy (laughs) it's kind of it's a veteran move Um, (laughs) as a you know part-time arms dealer I, you know, I kind of pride myself in my ability to to control the fates of various races. Like Nick Cage in Lord of War, Dan is a, a savvy businessman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. With uh, probably better acting skills. Uh, I don't know. But Have I'm you not seen The cool. Rock? Overall, I'm. Yeah, the Rock is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I'm saying overall, he's way cooler than I am. Uh, but well, the acting that's part. That's probably true. No, it is. I will say that. Well, Tiff, how about uh, you been getting anything a little heavier to the table? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, sushi Go. <laughs> you played more Sushi Go? Well, 
I've definitely played more Sushi Go. It continues to be the hotness at my board game club. And Machi Kuro is quite popular now that I own it. They request it every week, so that's nice. Um, I played the Phantom Society, which is a game um, from Yellow a while back, Fun Forge and Yellow, um, that is kind of like Ghostbusters the game. Uh, you have a board that it's two, it has two layers to it. So there are tiles that you place, and two of the players are ghost hunters, and two players are ghost masters. The ghost masters hide their ghosts underneath these different colored tiles. They correspond to the color of the tile. So you have to put your red ghost under the red tile, and then um, while they're hiding, the, the ghost hunters can't watch. And then they go ahead and destroy rooms of the manor floor that you're supposed to be in and they're trying to get to a certain goal um, of destruction. I think it's 45,000 pounds of damage and um, the ghost hunters are trying to find them before they inflict that much damage. And we played it probably three times, so it was a good one. This one drew my attention. I guess it was Gen Con two years ago we saw this and I I know Dan was really interested in it, but we never got a chance to play it and I never really read too much into it so um, I'm interested to hear that it was it was fun and that you got a bunch of plays in and that might be one that we have to check out definitely well we also got in some Machi Koro um, I, I played a three player game of that and I still don't know what Dan's secret strategy is so I didn't get to try it but I will say that uh, we got blown out of the water by her little brother we got blown out of the water uh, in a three player game he I went heavy into a seven strategy because I figured that's the most common number. And we rolled 12s and 11s uh, probably about 60 or 70% of the time. It was insane. So I got beat. I only got one of my one of my monuments and got uh, got crushed. So that was a little upsetting. The dice are not always friendly in Machi Koro. Oh, I know. I got destroyed by a 12-year-old today. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Did they use the secret Dan strategy? No, um, what they did was they, what is the one that gives you, I think it's three coins on everyone's turn. Is there one like that? It's the 10. Somehow a 10 just kept getting rolled over and over and over again. And so this kid just had a pile of money the whole entire time. And um, the other problem was the other player had sixes so they were stealing my money at all times because i'm a target in these games and uh i am a target in all games apparently but uh yeah he he destroyed me i had nothing built he got all four it's tough sometimes the game goes that way but fortunately it only lasts a half hour so you just move on yeah it was okay all right so that's a little sampling about what we've been playing um we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break And when we come back, we'll do the news, we'll do Kickstarter Spotlight, and then we'll go ahead and do our discussion, Players versus Collectors. So come on back. All right, so let's go ahead and get into some news and some Kickstarter Spotlight. The first piece of news that we have today is the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund auction, which is currently going on. Now, the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund was started in 2011 after Tom Vassal tragically lost his son Jack. 
And this is basically an annual auction set up to benefit gamers in need. So each year, a variety of different items, including board games, special editions, um, playtimes with some of your favorite board gaming personalities, these are all up for auction to benefit this nonprofit, um, which then gets divvied out throughout the year uh, to those who really need the funds and need different items um, due to different hardships that they may come across um, in their lives. So currently, the auction is set up and it will run through November 14th, 2014. So you can place bids on the different items up for auction until then. And it's currently raised over $42,000. Each year since 2011, this has been incrementally increasing um, in terms of how much money it's raised. So this year, you know, could go higher than last year, which was over $60,000. Some of the, the cool different items that you can get, like I said, you can get um, special printings, first editions, special art editions of, of board games, um, different you know Gen Con or Origin playtime sessions with you know the Secret Cabal or other podcasters that that you can meet up with. Um, it's really there's a lot of unique items, but you know obviously the focus is on benefiting those in need, and this really is a great opportunity as we state you know almost every episode these days. There's always something great going on to benefit those in need in this gaming community. And this is one of the biggest and most notable going around right now. So like I said, November 14th, head on over to BGG or go to jackvassal.org to check out more about the foundation and the auction and maybe place a bid yourself. So the next piece of news we have up moving from that is the release of the Imperial Assault Packs, which I think Dan has some more information about. So Imperial Assault, as I've mentioned in podcasts previous, is a game I'm really looking forward to. It's a Star Wars retheme of Descent. It's coming out from Fantasy Flight Games, so players will be dungeon crawling, so to speak, through the Star Wars universe, which is always awesome. Um, the game is yet to be released, and you know, as per FFG's uh, MO, they've already released info on the expansion packs. Uh, coming out for these games. So the first wave of Imperial Assault packs is called the Ally Ally and Villain packs. And some of the notable people that are in this expansion uh, are Han Solo and Chewie, which would be awesome to add. Um, Luke and Darth Vader already come in the base game, which is great. Um, There's also an assortment of Rebel Troopers, and there's a dude on an AT-AT, um, and IG-88, one of the coolest bounty hunters. IG-88 is in there as well. Um, so uh, a lot of well-known figures are coming into the, the game that hasn't been released yet. Um, so it's going to be pretty cool. Um, I can't wait for this game. And I've criticized this game before, but IG-88, Chewie, Han Solo, these things are exciting to see. And you know, hopefully Dan will pick it up and I'll get to play as these guys. Uh, next up we have... Um, the folks who brought us everything tiny and epic, Gameling Games, they just announced um, their 2015 and beyond release schedule. So this, well, not schedule so much as the games that they plan on publishing. Um, and to no one's surprise, there is another tiny epic game. This one coming from Scott Olms, the uh, designer of both the Tiny Epic Defenders and Tiny Epic Kingdom. And this one is going to be tiny epic galaxies so scott alms is taking us into space and we are trying to build the largest and most powerful galaxy um not much is known beyond that but this game is going to hit kickstarter in january and 
Gamelet actually just recently launched a contest to get a preview prototype of Tiny Epic Galaxies if you're willing to review it and share it, etc. So um, head on over to their site if you want to check that out. Uh, some of the other games they announced uh, include another game from Scott Alms called Shadows of Bor- Borgia, I guess is how it's pronounced. And this is a hidden role game. Um, we also have Vector, the micro game kind of capture the flag for hackers uh, from Adam McIver, who brought us Coinage. Um, and then there's also Rock Paper Wizards, which is a strange hybrid strategy party game. I'm really interested to see how they plan on doing that. This is from uh, Senfung Lim, Jay Cormier, and Josh Capel. So the guys who brought us Belfort, basically the whole team. Uh, strong Canadian uh, group there. And their secret society. Yes, the Canadian secret society has brought us something else. Um, and there's also one more, I apologize, from Michael Askew, and that is a worker placement set in the sci-fi kind of realm. Uh, you're mining, exporting things, and this is called Dark Rock Ventures. So, again, Gamelin just teased these. We don't know a lot about them uh, other than the name and some of the the uh, mechanics involved. So stay tuned for that. Uh, their recent newsletter has more details. Cool, cool. Now, there's also been some uh, some news from Rio Grande, if I'm correct. Yes, you are correct, Matt. Rio Grande, <laughs> um, they recently announced in their new newsletter uh, two additions to Bonanza, the Ladies and Gangsters and Princes and Pirates expansions, which will add more beans. Because it, to, there's one thing bean counting needed. It's pirates and gangsters. Yeah, it's pirate beans and gangster beans. Sound real cool. You can never have enough beans. Come on. You can never have enough beans. This is true. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Um, the other thing that's really cool that they announced is they're going to be reprinting the 1998 Spiel des Jahres winner, Elfenland, which is something that's been on my radar for a long time, and I just have not had a chance to uh, get this one. So that's really cool. Something else they mentioned, or alluded to, that's my favorite word, alluded, um, the Dominion. And I believe Race for the Galaxy are going to be getting new expansions as well. So that's all they they said, but enough of a teaser to get those fans excited about it. Um, not me, but there's others. Very cool. All right, so our last piece of news for today is actually a super, like, pressing news bulletin. And this is that Stonemaier Games has announced their new game Between Two Cities. And I know I tried to read this email in my car while driving, and that was inappropriate. So, Tiff, you read this from the comfort of your home. How about you tell us about it? Um, Between Two Cities is a game by Ben Rossett and Matthew O'Malley. Um, It's kind of a tile drafting game, but you play with partners on either side of you. Um, It's supposed to take about 20 minutes and plays three to seven players. Uh, I got the chance to play a prototype of this that was called Neighborhoods at the time, and this is going to be an awesome game. I'm really excited to see that Stonemaier Games picked it up because, you know, it's going to be great production value. They're looking to hit Kickstarter somewhere between January and June of 2015, and the game is expected to be about 30 bucks on Kickstarter. I didn't know you had played this. Am I going to get to use my realistic resources for this game? No, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> well, that's I got, okay. I got those, too. I'll just swim in them. <laughs> that's the plan. All right, so that's the news. But let's go ahead and move on to some Kickstarter spotlights that we have. We have four different projects lined up today. And the first one that we're going to take a look at 
is King's Forge from Game Salute. And Tiff, I know you've backed the original game. Um, this is actually King's Forge Apprentices, which is an expansion. But how about you tell us a little bit about the, the base game so we know what we're getting into. So King's Forge is a clever mojo game, which is why I kind of checked it out. They, they did Alien Frontiers. And the, this game uses dice as well. It's dice as resources. So, and it comes with like 100 plus dice. So what you're trying to do is forge different items for the king. And you use the dice to get more dice. And the dice are metal and wood and things to craft these different items. You try to get those completed. And that's how you win the game. All right. So using dice as resources. Yeah. Cool. So this is uh, Apprentices, which is the subtitle of the new expansion. And basically, um, it's sitting at 22000 of $25,000. It's got 24 days to go. So by the time this gets out to you guys, um, probably a little over two weeks. Um, so it'll likely fund. It's got plenty of time to get that last three grand. Um, but the page itself is actually pretty sparse in terms of... Um, information on King's Forge the game. So as someone who didn't back the game, I had to go hunting around to find out a little bit more. Um, but it does give you a heads up if you already have the game and know what it's about. It gives you all the information that you need to know in terms of what this expansion gets you, which is um, extra materials for a fifth player. Um, it adds apprentices that you can recruit, which have individual player powers. And then they word this as optional aggressive gather cards. So from that, I get the impression that the base game probably isn't that aggressively interactive. Is that fair to say, Tiff? So the gather cards in the base game, you commit some of your dice to get other dice, and there's not much player interaction in that. But these new aggressive gather cards, you commit a dice, and here's an example. All players must move three unused dice from their supply to their smithy tile. So you're committing dice, and they can affect the other players. Okay, so cool. So specifically what you're getting in the box, you're getting 14 apprentices with those variable player powers. You're getting 13 crafting items. You're getting nine of those gather cards that Tiff just described and six new smithies along with 28 dice to go with the 100 or so that you got in the base game and some tokens. So you can go ahead and take a look at the Kickstarter page to see some of the cool art that they have going. Um, I do like the, the art style. I think it's cool. It's a little cartoony. Um, and kind of cool. And this game for U.S. backers will only run you 20 bucks. So, and that's for the expansion though. So you can buy the base game along with it for another 45. But if you already have the game, it's only going to run you 20 bucks to add this on. Yeah. So that's King's Forge Apprentices from Game Salute and Clever Mojo. So the next up on the list is I Hate Zombies, and this is coming from actually Board Game Geek, but it's designed by Kevin Wilson. And this is described as rock, paper, scissors to the death or rock, paper, scissors with variable player powers. So um, this is supposed to be game number one in the Board Game Geek micro line. Do you know anything about that, Tiff? No, it's news to me. I, I just discovered it this week. Okay. Uh, so it must be something they have planned. I, I think the proceeds of this benefit Board Game Geek okay. is the idea. Interesting. Well, even more interesting, I guess, is what you just clued me into, which is Kevin Wilson's kind of track record. So I'm not a big, like, I can rarely match designers to games, but when we went down his uh, design history, now he's got his hands in some pretty big games, right? Oh, yeah. Descent, Arkham Horror, Sid Meier's Civilization, 
uh, Android, just a whole ton of them. Cosmic Encounter, just big name games. I mean, I maybe he's just getting tired of nine-hour games, and he wanted to, de- <laughs> to design something that takes about ten minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this is, like I said, rock, paper, scissors to some extent with these variable player powers. It kind of reminds me of something simple like a love letter or like a Brave Rats or something like that. Um, but it's, it is interesting for a designer basically on the opposite side of the spectrum to, to come down here to the micro end of things and, and design, some, design something. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's worth just checking out to see what, what he did there because it's such a different direction from his other games that he's worked on. Um, and it's only eight bucks, so it's probably worth checking out. Yeah, eight bucks puts it on your doorstep if you're in the U.S. and it isn't that much more uh, for those outside of the U.S., but, uh, yeah, I mean, it looks interesting. It's got, it's only 13 cards, so it truly is, you know, one of those micro games that you can carry around in your pocket or throw in your backpack. It's got some neat art if you're into kind of, like, exaggerated, cartoony, zombie-style art. And the gameplay sounds interesting enough. It's described as, like, a light party game, so if you have six friends at game night, usually, this might be one that's a pretty easy pickup. Plays up to 12. Well, then forget that. If you're just a popular guy who has 11 friends coming over for game night, you're good to go. There you go. Yeah, so it looks neat. And uh, it's at 11 or I guess $12,000 at the time of this recording. 31 days to go, probably around three weeks by the time you guys are hearing this. And eight bucks at a time. And they've still, uh, they still racked up about more than half of their goal. So with $9,000 to go, it looks like they will probably be okay. I would think. Yep. Yeah, so that is number two on our list for Kickstarter Spotlight. I Hate Zombies, Board Game Geek's micro game number one. And this third project I am very excited about. Tiff found this just for me. I had no idea this existed. And this is the Flat Plastic Miniatures from Arknight. Now, Tiff, you probably don't care about this at all, do you? It looks interesting to me. I actually used to be into making little paper craft minis. Oh, yeah? I like that. I was into print and play for a while, so I made little paper craft minis. And this is like a fancier version of a paper craft mini. It's transparent plastic, and the artwork is printed on it. So it's like a fancier cardboard standee. Essentially. I like this for, for two different reasons. The one is that the project itself, this project, so they've got a bunch of different fantasy-themed kind of groups so you can buy... Um, just the wildlands creatures, just the underground, like dwarven creatures, you can get ancient evils. So they've got cool different like theme packs that you can buy. Um, so I like the specific projects they are, that they're offering, the specific packs. I think that they're good for role-playing games or any kind of print-and-play fantasy theme that you may have. But I also like this project just because it speaks to kind of, I think, a move in the right direction in terms of more affordable, like miniature type components because from what I see they look pretty nice it's kind of like the in-between cardboard standees and full plastic miniatures so I I like this idea in the flexibility that it might provide designers in the future for component quality yeah I think it's really neat um I mean it's definitely going to be more thematic I think than than if you're someone who's not into painting miniatures, I guess is what I was thinking. Because these are full color. Um, they're the artwork that they have up. Now they don't have a whole ton of it up, but what they have up is really nice and detailed. And um, so if you're playing something that 
you need that for like a role playing game, I think it's going to be better than just flat plastic miniatures that you haven't painted. But maybe that's just me. No, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And then it's also better than just like tokens and pawns. So it's, it's like I said, it's kind of in between. And this really can be, they can do whatever they want because all they got to do is if they have the art and the image, all they have to do is, you know, turn it into this flat plastic form. And it seems to be pretty easy and affordable to do. Yeah, you can get all of what they've got, all the different packs for 75 bucks. And that's like 310 miniatures. Which is wild, because if you look at something now, I know, you know, Reaper miniatures, their Bones projects are some of the most popular on Kickstarter in terms of tabletop board gaming. I mean, they raise millions of dollars, but you're shelling out a decent, you know, a decent amount of money to get all those miniatures. These, I think 75 is a pretty affordable price to get full color, you know, they're flat plastic, but they technically are 3D, you know, they add a 3D presence to any of your games. Um, 75 bucks seems to be a pretty good price to get some well-made looking, uh, some miniatures. Yeah. And they're going to be space saving. I just got all my myth miniatures. <laughs> Yay. Myth. Okay. But, um, these can sit, you know, they have bases that they stick into, but these are going to take up way less space than a giant box of miniatures. That's true. I didn't think about that because they just come right off the base and you lay them flat. I mean, they're no thicker than, you know, a, a ream of paper or whatever when they when they stick together. So you could easily tuck them away in a much smaller uh, footprint. So that's cool. Yeah, it's a cool project. Yeah. So they have fully funded. So they have, by the time you guys see this, a good amount of time, over two weeks left. And like we said, 25 bucks will get you a single pack, depending on what you're looking for in terms of your fantasy theme. And then 75 bucks gets you all five of these packs. So you're actually saving. Um, it's like three... The price of three for five of them. Yeah, so they fully funded, and they're looking at a delivery date of September of next year. So you might have to wait a little while, but it looks like a like a cool project and definitely speaks towards the future of uh, minis. So I think that's cool. Okay, and the last project we have is World of Yoho, and this is by Yellow Games, and this is currently sitting at 22000 of a $50,000 goal. They have, by the time you guys hear this, over two weeks to go, and they're only about halfway there. But this is a game that's speaking to a trend that I'm seeing more and more. Um, and if you listen to our SN preview, you probably heard about Alchemists, which is doing the same thing. This is a board game that is integrating mobile apps and, and digital devices. Um, so this is World of Yoho, War of the Orchids, and this is basically a board game where you're sailing around fighting other players, but your ship that you're commanding is actually your iPhone or your uh, Android device. And you actually put that on the board like your pawn and you're moving that around. So an interesting take. What do you think about this kind of blend, Tiffany? I'm weary of it. I like my cardboard <laughs> um, just fine. And I... I kind of got out of video games and just looking at the video, there are some times where you're all up in your device just doing separate things. So it kind of looks like you're playing a video game and then you're sitting your phone down on the board and playing a board game. So it, I'm cautious about this, but it's yellow and anything they do interests me. They, they seem to put out some really awesome things and this seems pretty cutting edge. I know we've seen other things that ha other games that have um, devices, but the way they use the phones on the board to kind of animate 
the board and make it look more interesting kind of gets me excited. So you're, you have your phone on the board and you're in the middle of the ocean. They have little sea monsters and clouds floating by. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it reminds me, now I don't know if, if you've ever heard of this, Tiff, but it reminds me of a, a Xbox arcade game that I used to play with my brothers called Age of Booty. Um, which you no. it's a hilarious game. It's a lot of fun, but basically you're, you're commanding a ship. There's an upgrade system and you're just running around trying to control ports and fight people. And it almost seems like, you know, this is a very similar style of game to that. Um, so it does get me excited and it seems like they're doing it well. Now we'll see kind of whether or not, um, including the digital device kind of creates a disconnect. Cause I feel like that's the potential. Like you said, when, those moments where everyone is just sitting on their phone playing a video game, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose of why we play board games to some extent is that social interaction above the table. And it's almost kind of taking that out of it. But that doesn't mean that it won't be fun or innovative. So, you know, I'm excited to see how it works. But, uh, you know, there's some concern. I can see the reasons why people would be like, eh, I'm not sure about this one. Yeah, they've got some cool stuff listed on like why they designed the the game this way and why they're using the phones. And a lot of things that they're citing are setup things. It it allows you to kind of um, set up faster, and you can pause and resume your game because you can save it. Yeah. In the phone, yeah. so that's kind of cool. It's an excellent feature. So, thirty five bucks is the basic pledge level to get this game, and that is kind of the digital only version. Um, so it's going to get you everything you need to play if everyone you are going to be playing with has uh, an iOS or Android device. 60 bucks is the next step up, and that will actually get you all the physical components to play this game with just one device. So if you have to do kind of a pass-and-play thing, it involves some cardboard standee ships that you use to mark your positions on the board, um, and that will get you a box version of the game. So... If everyone's got a device and all you need is kind of the board and the base setup, 35 bucks gets it in your hands. Um, so that's pretty cool. They have about halfway to go, but they've got plenty of time. Um, I'll be interested interested to see how this one does because it seems to be, you know, the new the new thing, the new revolution in gaming is the introduction of these these electronic devices. So cool stuff. All right, so that's pretty much all we have in terms of Kickstarter. That's four projects, short and sweet. Um, hopefully you found some cool stuff that you'd be interested in and there should be plenty of time by the time you guys are hearing this to check those out and now we're going to go ahead and take a short break and when we come back we're going to jump into a discussion topic which is the buying versus collecting debate All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started with today's discussion topic, which is players versus collectors. But before I begin, I want to go ahead and introduce one of our league members. We've got Steve, or Steven, with us here today, and he'll be joining us for this collection. So say hi to the, the listener, Steve. Hello, listener, Steve. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> At so, least he didn't tell us if he wasn't wearing pants or not. That's true. Steve, are you I, wearing pants I or wear, not? I wear pants around these guys because I don't know what's going to happen if I don't understandable reasonable all right so pants on steve will be joining us today um obviously tiff and dan will be joining me for the conversation as well so today we're going to be talking about players versus collectors and what we mean by that is we want to distinguish buying patterns between buying just to collect either for aesthetic value for you know component value for something that you like just to have on your shelf or 
buying only for the ins- for the reason of playing. So I buy games not to sit on my shelf, but to get to the table um, every time I won't buy a game that isn't going to get played. So that's what we're talking about today. And the most logical place to start is to kind of identify ourselves as players or collectors. I wouldn't say these are mutually exclusive, but for the sake of the conversation, we'll try to polarize a little bit. So Tiff, what do you consider yourself? Oh, I definitely consider myself a collector. Um, I have nearly 500 games at this point, so I can't possibly play my entire collection in the course of a year. And a lot of what's on my shelf is there just because I like it, not because it's necessarily going to make it to the table. Okay. So Steve, how about you? Are you a player or or are you a collector? I'm a player. I'm kind of new to all these games, introduced to these by uh, Matt and Dan. So I'm kind of taking everything I can in any game that I can play. Yeah, but you're using uh, that to inform your purchases. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I usually go buy a game after I play a game okay. with you guys. So um, you already know that you want to play it. Oh yeah, I want to play anything, everything, <laughs> anything and everything. Okay. And if I like it, then I'll go buy it. All right, cool. So I would definitely consider myself a player as well. I've definitely gotten a little bit into collecting. There's some games that I have just because I really wanted them, um, mainly those quote-unquote collectible games. Um, But I definitely buy a game with the intention of playing it, and any game in my collection I have specifically to be played, you know, anytime anybody wants to play a game, even if it is one of my quote-unquote collectibles, I'm ready to get it to the table. So I'd say I'm a player. Dan, how about you? Um... Everything I buy, I have the intention of playing, so I don't know. Am I hybrid in that way? I like to collect games. I have a lot of them, but I also like to play them, so I, can be I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I don't I don't know how I'm supposed to differentiate myself in this way, but yeah. I buy games, I buy a lot of games, and I intend to play all of my games. Okay. All right, so the next thing we really wanted to find is kind of what drives your purchase decision. So we've talked about whether or not we're a collector or we're more of a player or we're more of a hybrid, but really what do you consider when you go to buy a game? So what really informs your purchase decisions? So I'm actually going to kick this one over to Steve first and see what he, what goes into your thought process when you're, when you're buying a game. Well, for me, it's uh, usually, I live about a half hour away from these guys, so I don't get the game as much with them. Um, Usually it's, uh, if it's going to work as a two player game, because it's me and my wife usually that play a lot. Um, she's kind of new to this as well, but she's catching on to games pretty quickly now, and she always beats me at games. So, <laughs> um, so you're looking for something that you can beat her at? No, no. It's more. It's. I have been kicking her ass at trains. I'll put it that that way. Nice. Um, I'm trying to find games that me and her can play instead of just sitting watching TV doing nothing. We play the play games now. So I kind of look at good two-player games. Um, if it's not too difficult, not too mathy for her, cause she hates math. Uh, she right. hated Trains the first time we played it, but now she loves it. So it's kind of like I have to force her sometimes. So I kind of just kind of find games that me and her can play the most, and that really drives yeah. my decision, my first step in buying a game. So you usually. really look at your game group, like who are you going to be playing this game with, and that's what drives your, yeah, your decision? Yeah, the other the other yeah. half of my game group, so to speak, is my mom and stepdad are always texting me on the weekend, hey, let's play games, because I kind of got them into it. Nice. Uh, so I kind of think of them as well, but they have kind of graduated pretty well too, because it was constant ticket to ride. So I kind of got them at, out of that, let's play the train game every weekend and they're trying new games. So I, I kind of think of them as well. 
Nice. Steve yep. is like notorious for every Saturday was playing Ticket to Ride and all of the expansions. <laughs> like... Yeah, my mom bought them all. <laughs> I bought the first one, and then she went and bought the rest. Which so. is cool, though. I mean, and and it's a I'm a little bit different because I do try to factor in my game group. Like I'm also a two player gamer because I play with Kelly B, you know, primarily, or if Ben's around. So I think of two player games, and then I immediately think of three player value. So I do think about my game group, but also sometimes. I get hung up on games that I just want. So I'm always I'm kind of selfish when I think about like theme of games. So for instance, like a Mage Wars or something like that. Like I like collectible games. I like card games. So if a new one comes out, I kind of I make the purchase without considering my game group. Even if I know like I bought Warhammer 40k Conquest and I knew I probably won't have a ready opponent for this, but I want it. I want to check it out. I want it in my collection. So I went for that anyway. So I don't always consider my game group, which I guess isn't always the most informed choice. But um, I'm a little bit of both in terms of I look at what I want just to have um, or what I like mechanically. And and I also look at my my game group who's actually going to get to play this game with me. So I don't know. Tiff, are you like the same way? Are you different? I don't really consider my game group and what they're going to play all the time. In fact, probably most of the time, I'm more selfish. I'll look at what I'm interested in, what I want to play, and then kind of shoehorn them into playing it. (laughs) Nice. Um, My purchase decisions are kind of driven by, I kind of look at it as I'm building up a library of board games. So anybody that comes into my house can find a board game that they want to play. So I have a pretty wide selection between really casual, small games to really gigantic, epic games. So I try to have a little bit of everything from every genre, um, a lot of variety and theme. Um, but recently, I'd say that the, the number one thing that's driving my purchase decisions is just kind of quirkiness. That's what I look for in a game nowadays. That's because Tiff is our resident hipster gamer, and she's always looking for something weird and unusual. It's true. Well, Dan, what's in, what informs your purchasing decisions? So you're the, the self-defined hybrid in this group, so I'll be interested to hear kind of what do you go for when you go to buy a game? Uh, first and foremost, I'm selfish. So well, I'm not really, but when I purchase my games, I always look at whether or not I think I will like this game. And then as Matt said, I kind of look at the group obviously that we're going to be playing it with and whether they'll like it because that's obviously a huge factor and whether or not I'll get it to the table. Um, and that's, I guess where my collector side comes in because when I buy a game that I know I probably won't get to play, that's the collector in me speaking. Um, and I'll still buy it for some reason. You know, I like the components. I like the theme. I hope someday someone will play it with me things like that. But, um, for the most part, it's it's whether or not I think I like the game. I'm I don't know if this is Tiffany's influence or not, but I have been more intrigued by um, overseas games, so the European market. I guess what we would call hipster games, things that you can't necessarily find over here. Um, those have really been fun, you know, tracking down those gems, so to speak, that are hidden and other people just haven't had access to. I think that's it's a lot of fun. That's again, that's the collector side of me, but you know. I do enjoy just buying games. It's it's kind of an addiction. See, and I wonder if you guys all kind of consider your group probably more than I do because you have been gaming with the same people longer than I have. My group has changed probably three times in the last two years, the primary people that I game with. But you guys have more of like a family-centered group. 
So you kind of always know what the tastes are in your group. I never know from year to year who I'm going to be playing with, so I don't take it into consideration as much. That's a good point. I mean, we, we're definitely family-centered, so our game group revolves around, you know, the four brothers of us, then all the extensions, so girlfriends, wives, moms and dads, um, and then we stretch out to Steve and Ben. Um, so our, our, But our game group is very centered. We kind of have this core, and we because we're all working on the site together, we have established our tastes pretty pretty readily. So it's a good point that, you know, we kind of know who we're buying for, and I think Dan is kind of notorious for selfless buying because he's always texting me like, yeah, I picked this game up because I know Eric's going to love it, or I picked this game up because I know Mike's going to love it. Um, so he's always looking for finds that other people are going to be drawn to. So it's a good point in terms of game group informing purchasing decisions. I do think that that's kind of what we readily rely on because um, we know who we're going to be playing with. But on that same note, because we do know who we're going to be playing with versus you may not, Tiff, how much of your collection has been played? You've got 500 games. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been trying to think about what my answer is to that that question and I have played a lot of my collection but I I know that there there are a few games in there that are still in shrink that I know I'll get played eventually but just haven't found the right people to play them with Um, I rely on the conventions and kind of some of the things I go to to get some of those heavier things played so it's a little bit spaced out for the heavy stuff but most of my light games I've played more than once Medium yeah. to light games all get played. The heavier ones, it's just a little bit harder to find the right group for. Yeah, but that's good, though. I mean, it's good to know that you're collecting, but you also are still getting things to the table. Yeah, there's not too much sitting with dust on it or anything like that. I have a couple of games, and usually when that happens, I will try to trade them away for something I'm a little bit more keen on. Yeah, well, Dan, how about you? How much of your collection has actually been played, and then how much of it has been played more than once? I think everything in my collection, but just a few games has been played by myself whether it was someone else's copy and i decided to buy it afterwards or i've actually got it played with the group i'd i'd say there's probably only about 10 games i haven't played in my whole collection yeah i guess i should mention that probably my unplayed list is equal to some people i know their whole entire collection i probably have 30 games that haven't been played if you need a number yeah but that's kind of the nature of having a big collection is that just there's only so much time in the day. So, I mean, percentage-wise, that's still not bad. You're still getting a lot of things to the table, so that's cool that you're you're playing your collection. More than once? That's a different story. Yeah, that one's a little bit trickier. Well, Steve is like our resident player. If there's anyone I know who's played a game more than once, it's Steve. So how about your collection? How many games have you played in it, and how many games have you played more than once? And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a 100% answer. <laughs> Actually, no, I... All my games we play, um, some games are kind of not being played as much. Like, the first game I bought was Survive, and that hasn't been played in a very long time. And I actually thought about bringing that tonight, but I didn't. I think the only game that I kind of bought that nobody really wants to play is Elder Sign. Uh, Really? I bought it because I play with these guys, and I was like, I bought it not long after that. And my wife is just like... Yeah. <laughs> she enjoys rolling dice. That's her favorite thing. But other than that, she I kind of play the game and she rolls the dice. So it's kind of not as fun. Yeah. I tried to teach it with to my mom and she was just like, mm, whatever. Is and that a so, theme thing? I, I think it might be. I, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's just She's too many. It might be too many things going on. Like they don't understand what they're trying to do, I think, sometimes. Mm-hmm. So 
So I'm not one to play games by myself. I have the app, so that that kind of settles that, I guess you could say. Oh, if I funny. wanted to play it, I just play the app. So that's one of the games. I think that's kind of the only game that I can think off the top of my head that doesn't get played. It just sits there. So, yeah. Well, yeah. you're kind of in a unique spot because you get to play all these games with us, you know, when you come yeah. around. Yeah. So you do get a sampling of, like, what you're going in in terms of purchasing decisions, but we play everything. So it's like yeah. Yeah. you've got to really be discerning when you go to buy a game as to whether or not it'll transfer to the family setting or not. So, But other sign is good. You just got to keep pushing it. Make them yeah, play it. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, in terms of my collection, now my collection is much smaller because Dan, um, we obviously kind of share our collection in that we game together. Same with Steve. Like, we all kind of have this communal collection to some extent because I know, oh, if Smee bought this or if Dan bought this, then I don't necessarily have to. So I think I've played everything in my collection once aside from you know, the things that I bought in the last week or two that I just haven't been able to get to the table yet. But I definitely only buy things that I'm going to be able to play more than once. So I think I could say all my collection has been played at least once, except for those few games that I got in the last week. And then probably 90% has been played two or more times, um, with many of those games being played over and over again, because I usually only grab those games that I know my primary game group, like Kelly B and Ben... The ones that I game with super frequently are going to want to play over and over again. So that actually, we can transition into another topic. So this is an interesting one because I know that I differ in pretty harshly in perspective in terms of um, buying games, not that you'll never play, but buying games specifically for art purposes. So I know that Dan and Tiff are super huge art fans, and I usually, I'm not a good art like critic, so I never know really what's good art. I know what I like. But I don't usually buy games for art. But I'm wondering about you guys. So do you guys ever go in and buy games just for the art? What do you think? Well, there are games that I get interested in because of the art. So a lot of times that'll be the first thing that pulls me into a game. And on a good day, if I have enough cash in my pocket, if I see something that just looks beautiful, I might pick it up sight unseen, just kind of impulse buy-ish. I did that with Tokaido. I was like, wow, that's just beautiful, and I just want to see it. Plus, it was Bowser. But, um, so I bought that as art, and it doesn't get played that much, but I can't imagine getting rid of it. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think art, especially nowadays, the art's come so far as far as the look and just how it contributes to the theme of a lot of these games. So it, it always pulls me in, like, right away. And then I go from there as far as do I like the gameplay like that. I will say that I think I think designer on the box, the designer's name on the box is the first thing I look at. But then art is a close, close second. So a lot of times I have bought games where the art was just beautiful. One of those being uh, Shinobi Clans, a recent Gen Con purchase of mine. The art in that was just stunning. And that caught my eye immediately. And I just, it was the right price. It was like 20 bucks. I said, here you go. I don't even know how this game plays, but the art was great. I figured the worst thing I could do is I could turn it into like playing cards or frame it or something. So it's definitely uh, it's a starting point. I don't know if it's end all be all, but it's definitely a starting point. Yeah, and I think one of the games that have changed my perspective in terms of buying games for the art is Abyss, and that's a game that we recently Dan recently picked up at Gen Con, and I I really enjoy the game for the gameplay. But the art is so fantastic that that's really what pushes me over in terms of justifying the purchase. Like, I'm so close to buying the game, 
because I know I like the game, and also I can say, like, this is just a good game to look at, and I can get a different box cover than Dan. So, like, that's the kind of game that pushes me over the edge in terms of buying a game just for the art or just for the aesthetic of the game. Um, like that, Because that game is so beautiful. But um, it also that alludes to something else, which is buying games that are already in the group, which is something I'm interested in. So Tiff, I know your game group is a little bit more scattered or at least randomized time to time, it seems. So how do you feel about buying games that are already in your primary gaming group? Oh, I don't worry about it at all. I just buy what interests me. Uh, Occasionally I'll try a game that someone in my group has purchased and I like it enough that I just want to have my own copy, whether that's to take with me to, I have the Panericon group that I play with once a month and I have my uh, middle school board game club. So, you know, if, if someone in my group owns it, I can't take it with me wherever I go. So I'll still buy it even though they have it and even though I'll get to play it. Yeah. And Steve, I mean, you, we're not your primary game group. We're almost like a secondary game group um, because, like you said, you game with Alicia and your family more. So how do you feel about buying games that we already own? Well, I have no problem doing that because... (laughs) Like you said with Elder Sign, yeah. So, yeah, you guys have Elder Sign, so I went and bought Elder Sign. So you kind of got... You guys are kind of like my... Mm -hmm. You introduce me to these games, and then I say, yeah, this will work for us, and I end up getting it. But there is games that I have bought that never play with you guys, like Sultania and Splendor I bought and Machi Koro Mm -hmm. recently. So Yeah. Now, are there any games that you know that we own that you think, okay, I'm only ever going to get to play with those guys, so I'll just pass on it? Like, does that ever happen? Like, games Mm -hmm. that you want, but you know, like, I'm only ever going to get to play this with the League. No? Not that I can think of okay. at the moment. Cool. No. Yeah, no, I was just wondering. I didn't know if, like, because no, I, I know. I think ahead. it's always secondhand. You guys kind of, like I said, you guys got me into this more. So, yeah. Because um, beforehand, we were just playing party games. So yeah. So it wasn't anything. Um, so anything that I think that will transition well to my friends and my family or whatever, I that's what I usually go by. Yeah. Okay. Because I know, like, things like heavier Euros um, and some of the meteor games, like your Panamaxes. Um, your eclipses and things like that. I know I'm only ever going to get to play that with Dan and Smee and Steve, yeah. and, you know, the league. So I usually don't buy them over again. So games that are already in my group, like Dan already owns that. So I won't buy that again because I know those are the guys that I'm going to get to play with anyway. But other games like Skull or some of the lighter like party games, even things like Machi Koro um, or two-player games that Dan may own, like Mage Wars or something like that. Like those are games that I'll buy again because I know I can get them to the table with my group, my other group, because I'm kind of split here, kind of in the middle. But Dan, how do you feel about that in terms of, you know, you kind of fund the collection to some extent of the league. So what do you think about games that are already in the group being bought? To each his own. I mean, if you want something in your collection, cool. I mean, that that speaks to the collector in all of us. I mean, I buy games because I want them in my collection. Um, and I think they'll get played if people play them and they find that they're great. And like you said, they have other groups or family that are, you know, separate. I mean, everyone's not related to you and I, I guess you and I are related, but Steve's not related to us. He looks a little different, but <laughs> I mean, he's basically family. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. Brother from another mother. Yeah. But, um, no, I mean, whatever. I'm always looking to like grow the group, and I always think it's great if we have diversity, but at the same time, I understand why people would buy the same game if they had other people to play it with, you know, because 
my collection is not always readily available, for instance. So, yeah, okay. Um, and I guess the next step in this, so we're just kind of moving right along in these different ideas we had about playing versus collecting. So, how do you gauge the worth of a game collection? Some of the ideas we had were like, do you gauge your game collection on how much time you're going to get to play those games? Do you gauge kind of the value of your collection on rarity? Do you look and think, man, my collection is awesome because I have these games that no one else does? Do you think about like trade value? Like, oh, I've got this great game. I've got a Dead of Winter and people want Dead of Winter. So that's good trade fodder. Or do you just think like monetary value? Like all my games are $80 and that's cool. So my collection's worth like 2000 bucks. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how do you gauge the worth of a game collection? What do you look for, Steve? I think it's just, for me, it's, is it worth having because it's going to get played? Um, I know a lot of games, when I first buy them, get played a lot, and they slowly stop getting played. But I can see all my games eventually coming back to be played. So I think I, I value it by how much it's going to get played. So Spoken like a true player. Yeah. <laughs> buy games because you want to play them. You want them on the table. Right. And... You know, you're not going to waste time. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same way, but I, I admit again, like, sometimes I just buy things because they're cool um, or because I like the theme of them. Um, I don't think I've ever bought anything for trade value specifically, but I have traded for games and gotten games back and thought, like, okay, I can use this for trade fodder. Like, this is a good addition to my collection because, you know, it's kind of a sought-after game. Um, monetary value I don't really lean on heavily because I only purchase games that I think are worth the money I'm spending on them anyway Um, so I really look towards the more intrinsic values in terms of I like these games, I want these games I'm going to play these games versus something like the money that I spend on them and things like that so Dan, the value of your collection? You know, we touched on it earlier. It's nice to have some of those hipster games that other people don't have in your collection I guess I value those a bit Because, you know, it's one of those, look what I have kind of things. But that's just kind of, that's semantics. Uh, The the value of my collection is basically what I get out of it. And that's that comes back to how much I can play it. And, yeah, that's about it, really. I don't put a monetary value on my collection. It's a lot of money. I mean, board gaming is not cheap. Everyone knows that. Um, So, uh, at the end of the day, I would love to get my games played. So... I, I keep those in my collection that I think are going to get played, and I trade away those I don't. Yeah. So money's not really the thing. It's just worth it because you're going to get to play them and have fun with them? Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah, board gamers and board game collectors are, are, I guess, blessed with a bit of disposable income, or not blessed. and so Struggling yeah. to feed their families <laughs> yeah. in cardboard boxes. I was going to say, they're, they're trying to play real-life Agricola, but, you know... It's, yeah, I don't put a monetary value on it because that would drive me nuts. Yeah, cool. Well, Tiff, you've got the collection. I keep hearkening back to it. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, I'm interested to think, how do you gauge the value of your collection? You stand in your library, and, you know, what, what does it mean to you? I don't know. There is all of those things that you guys are talking about go into it, and, and that's how I gauge it. It's kind of a amalgamation of all of those things. I, I do sit there and just kind of enjoy my collection and look at it and there are games that I haven't ever played but I'll just pull out and and just check them out I'll read the rule book every once in a while in hopes that maybe it might get played but I just like having it 
Um, so that factors into it, just the enjoyment of the components. Like I just recently bought Heart on der Grenze, which is the original version of Sheriff of Nottingham. And it comes with these little tins, suitcase tins that you put your cards in. And I just like pulling that out and looking at the tins. So there's that side of the enjoyment. Now, the bigger piece of it is playing it with my group and enjoying it with my friends. Um, so I, that's the most important thing out of all of it. I am a hipster gamer. So occasionally like I'm looking for something that no one's ever heard of that I can pull out and tweet about or talk about, be like, Hey, look at me. I know about this and you don't occasionally I get enjoyment out of that. Um, and as far as monetary value goes, uh, I really don't want to think about that. I do a lot of work in order to have the disposable income that I do. Like I, I teach outside of my job. Uh, I teach private lessons in order to fund my board game habits. Um, but I recently discovered this bggtools.com. So if you really want to be horrified, if you have a lot of games, you can check this out. What you do is you go in, you put in your BGG handle, and it will take all the games that you have in your collection and it will find the average price of those games based on the BGG marketplace and give you a value, a monetary value for your collection. Um, it's a little wonky because if if there's nothing for sale and it's never been for sale on the BGG marketplace, it spits out a zero. But I I put my collection in that tool today. So how many of your Kickstarter projects did you cancel after? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm not really back in too much right now. No. So I've been avoiding Kickstarter after my week of just like constant packages right around Essen, everything shipped and it was like, oh my gosh. So yeah, I don't I don't think about the monetary value too much. I, I try I have a budget that I keep within and, and as long as I stick in my budget, I'm I'm feeling okay about that. But it's really it's really just the enjoyment that I can have either just checking it out on my own or solo gaming things or playing with my group. Um, sometimes I'll try a game out that I know has a good trade value that maybe I wouldn't normally buy. Like Dead of Winter, I was like, yeah, I'll just buy this. I don't know if I'm going to like it or not, but I know that someone will like it if I don't. That's fair. Well, I'm going to kick it right back to you since you are our resident collector. And I'm going to say, Tiff, how do you know... Or how many is too many? I'll let you know <laughs> when I get there. So you're not there yet? I, You know, I, I've gotten to the point where my shelves are more or less filled. I have six IKEA shelves full of games. So I'm starting to call some out of my herd. Uh, I used to have the number 365 as my. That is, If you get past 365, that's more than one game every single day of the year, then that's too many. Um, but then I broke through that, and I'm like, well, you could. some of these games are small. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So now what, it's like 780 or whatever 365 yeah. times 2 is? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. So I don't know. I, I don't know that there's too many as long as you are being uh, fiscally responsible and you can take care of your obligations and you're getting some kind of enjoyment out of it. I don't know that there is anything as too many. Um I mean, when, when the game designer Sid Saxon died, they auctioned off over 10,000 games out of his collection. So That's wild. Maybe that's too many. I don't know. I don't know. But that was a very adult and reasonable answer. So good for you for I'm a grown up. delusional. 
Yeah. All right. So we're going to round up this discussion. I think we've been talking. Um, we've had a lot of good thoughts going around, but I'm going to ask a, a couple quick questions um, and you can just kind of answer. If you want to give a brief discussion, go ahead. But let's try to keep it tight here. So what game in your collection holds the most value to you? Um, I think that depends if it's sentimental or monetary. Either way or both. Sentimental, I'd probably say Carcassonne because I've been playing that the longest. I played that in college, which was well over 14 years ago, I guess, something like that. So, yeah, that one really got me into to gaming. Settlers of Catan as well, even though I don't own that anymore. My favorites go in and out, so I love all my games that I have so far. There are a few I'm trying to trade. It's like making you choose one of your children. Is that what's happening yeah. here? Yeah. You can go look Dan up at Scandalous Nad on BGG and you can find out what he's trading. But Tiff, so in all of your 500 children, what game in your collection holds the most value to you? It's got to be Defenders of the Realm. I had a feeling you painted those miniatures. Yeah, it's it's the only game that I've taken the time to paint all of the, the miniatures for. Not all the minions, but most of the miniatures for, so... Um, it's that, it's just that it was one of the very first games that I started playing. Um, I got it cause it was a co-op and I loved pandemic and it was kind of the next level of pandemic. So I played that solo by myself so many times and just late at night sitting up by myself defending the realm and it's by my favorite <laughs> designer, Richard Lanius. So yeah, that's probably the one for me. I have just a mental image of you wearing like a wizard's robe and hat, just like you know it. I think the realm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think in my collection, it's a it's a game that started it all. Which you guys are gonna look at me funny, but it's Munchkin. In terms of most sentimental value, a game like Munchkin is what started the board game thing for me and my friends. And it's a game that never gets to the table anymore, but I'm never going to get rid of that game and all those expansions. I, I own so many of them because we would just play for hours and hours and hours every day. Um, and I, even though the game is not like when you when you get into the hobby and you realize that Munchkin, there's a lot of problems with it. It's still a game that I can't let go because of the sentimental value to me. And if I'm ever a, a collector, it's when I'm holding on to my Munchkin set because I'm not letting that go because that's where it all began for me. All right, Steve, coming I, I back around, you, you've been thinking. You've got, you've got, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 games in your collection. Which one have you been playing the most? Which one do you like the most, the most value the to? One, okay, if it's going to be for me, I think I like the most and would like to play the most is Istanbul. I like that game a lot. Um, I don't know if it would be sentimental, though. but It doesn't have to be, but just, um, you know, what you value it the most because you, you want to play it the yeah, most? Yeah, that's or, the one. I think yeah. I, think I, play, I like, want to play that a lot, um, but I think it's beyond me if it's my wife or my step, uh, my mom and stepdad. It would be Ticket to Ride for them because that's what they always <laughs> want to play. It's got to be Ticket to Ride, yeah. doesn't it? Um, I don't mind playing Ticket to Ride. It's just enough's enough at some point. I guess that's the game that kind of got me started into it. I guess it's a lot of people. But uh, yeah, I would have to say that that would probably be it. Uh, that would have the most value as far as playing value. Fair enough. I can get anybody to play it, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, looking at the flip side, so you've got about 40, 50 games in your collection. What's the worst game you've ever bought? It can be Quilt Show. It's okay. Yeah, I would go with Quilt Show. <laughs> really? I was just teasing. No, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the worst game, but it's kind of cool, but uh, I don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> no? You're kind of done with it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's neat. It's I think it goes too long. Do you have buyer's remorse with it? Like, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, fair. Yeah. 
my again my the ticket to ride comes in so my mom and stepdad really like it because it's basically ticket to ride yeah. it's the same mechanics but a little more creativity with it but yeah it's not, not bad not it's really just, feeling it anymore it's just, yeah it was yeah whatever yeah. <laughs> dan how about you what's the worst game in your that you've ever bought yeah, buyer's remorse about. You bought a lot of games and you traded a lot away. What do you What do you think? We're also very informed purchasers, though, so I wouldn't be surprised if you don't have like a lot of bad games that you've bought. Uh, the Just one game like... I regret recently buying is Rogue Agent. Mm-hmm. We got that to the table. The rule book was horrible. The gameplay was just wonky. And just had no idea what was going on. And I'm trying to get rid of it, but I think everyone else has caught on to that as well. So, no luck. Still sitting in my collection, and I stare at it and hate it every day. Diff, how about you? What do you What do you think is the worst game you've ever bought, or do you have buyer's remorse about? Oh, I don't know. I, I can appreciate most of everything that I've bought for one reason or another. Like, I kind of had a little bit of buyer's remorse when Myth showed up, but I haven't actually played it yet, trying to find a rule book that works for me, and I do like all the minis. So I can't say that I completely regret it yet. Um, one game that I traded away that I absolutely hated when I played it was Merchant of Venus. Really? So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> It seemed like That's that. Okay. It seemed like it hurt it. your feelings for a second. So no, I've been interested in it though. So I'm interested to hear. You know, you didn't like it. Yeah, I mean, it's got roll and move, and it can be frustrating because you can get stuck in like a loop around where you're trying to go, trying to get the right dice roll, and it takes forever. Like we didn't even play. The first time, didn't even play a full game of it because it just took too long. People had to go, and we were like three hours in. So. It's just it was just not for me. I can see why people dig it, but it's just oh, it was I was miserable the whole time I was playing it. Yeah, I think for me, I think um, some of the not the worst games that I've ever bought, but some of the buyer's remorse that I have is when I try to kind of push the limits of my gaming group, um, particularly when I've like looked into some RPG systems or I've looked into some miniatures games. I find that. Maybe that's too far of a stretch for some of the people that I'm playing with. Um, so I've got like minis or I've got books sitting around that I, I haven't quite gotten good use out of. So that's a little bit of buyer's remorse there. Now, I still like having them for the aesthetic value and just, you know, because I can I can mess around with them in my free time. But I, I do admit that, you know, not taking in my game group, not considering them enough has kind of bit me in the backside here because they're just not getting played. And that's a couple bucks that I could have put towards a game that maybe we would have liked more and would have gotten to the table more. So that's kind of what I'm looking at in terms of buyer's remorse. Okay. So I think that that's, you know, our discussion. Does anybody have any final thoughts in terms of collecting versus playing? That was kind of a lighthearted discussion just about, you know, our habits and what we like and don't like, but I think there's always good information. It's always interesting to hear these things. So any final thoughts on that? Mm. All right. I'll take that (laughs) as a, As a note that this discussion is probably about spent, so we will go ahead and end this discussion and we will transition into our next segment, which will be the collection trivia that Tiffany has prepared for us. So when we come back from this short break, Tiffany will go ahead and host the collection trivia and we'll see how that goes. But. All right, so we've been talking a whole lot about board game collecting, so I put together some trivia question for you guys about collecting games. 
Are you ready for it? Bring it on. Ready for the first question. Here it is. How many games in the largest collection documented in the Guinness Book of World Records? So this is board game collection. Here are your options. A, 531. B, 1,531. C, 5,031. D, 15,031. This is as of 2011. That is so many games, no matter what the answer is. It's a lot of games. What's your answer, Matt? Uh, I'm going to go with 5,031. Okay. Dan? D. Okay. It pains me to say this, guys, but the answer is indeed B, 1,531. Really? It's okay. document. Yeah, I know. It's It surprised me, too. I bet the answer is closer to 15,000, but in, in you're, all reality. You're halfway there. Hey, so there's some dude hey with now. like a secret giant library who just hasn't told Guinness. Well, if you go and creep on some board game geek collections, there are quite a few that are well over a thousand. Um, and, and peeking into that fifteen thousand, I think this is a matter of this guy applied to be in the Guinness Book of Guinness World Records. Guinness needs to step the game up. To all of our listeners out there with bigger collections than that, get yourself in a book. <laughs> so true. <laughs> All right, so, so far, zero points for either of you. Reading is fundamental. <laughs> Here's the next question. This one is based on your knowledge of my board game collection. Good luck. It is the worth of my collection using the board game tools website thingy that I talked about earlier. So it takes what I have entered in Board Game Geek, averages the prices of each game that I have on there, and then spits out a total of what my 473 games are worth. 473 games. I'm going to crunch some quick numbers. Closest without going uh, over. Right. Price is right rules. Just doing a quick number crunch, you know. Do, 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 do. If it makes you feel any better, the number is horrifying to Yeah, me. well, the number that I got is horrifying as well. Tiff, I'm going to guess... Price is right rules. I'm going to say $18,000. Okay. Dan? $18,001. I've been duped. One of you should have guessed $1 because you both went over. Really? And uh. it makes me feel a lot better, actually. They, <laughs> the Board Game Tools estimated my collection at $10,781. Wow. Guys, you're going to have to step up your game here. I just went with points. an average price of $40 a game and assume that some went higher, some went lower. My average price was 25 ish You I are think. like the filler queen, so... I do have a lot of fillers. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, either way, that's sad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Ah, I can't take either this way, abuse. Either way, you have a problem. That is true. Okay. Now, here's one. I went snooping into your guys' collections on Board Game Geek. On the Board Game Geek. Oh, I sound like an old person. On Board Game Geek. <laughs> and what on I need you to guess... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sad. What I need you to guess at is the highest valued game in each other's collection on Board Game Geek. Matt's collection? Uh, Descent. Oh, you're so close. All right. That, that was his second most expensive game. All right. For Dan, I'm going to guess War of the Ring. <sighs> nope. Damn. 
All right, Dan, you get a half point for guessing the second most expensive game. Matt, your most expensive game, according to Board Game, was Dreadball. Dreadball? Yeah. What? I, lo- I looked on Board Game Geek. That's what it said, Dreadball. I have spent a decent money on Dreadball. If anybody wants to play Dreadball out there, come find me in Maryland. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> plays in this state. <laughs> but anyway, no, okay. That's, I think that's like an $80 game, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And see. Dan's was Caverna. I thought War of the Ring was like this crazy expensive game, though. War of the Ring's like sixty bucks. Really? Damn, I thought that was like a space. I think it retails for like eighty. Oh. There is the collector's edition, which is crazy expensive. Oh, the painted one. Yeah. It's like ten thousand dollars. We'll talk more about that later. Okay. So I was wrong. Dan is winning half a point to zero. Wow, this is pretty sad, guys. This is how Dan and I play board games, though. We're always this close. All right, so here here it is. The price, okay, highest without going over, price is right rules, the price of the most expensive non-Magic the Gathering game on the BGG Marketplace. Dan, go ahead. I don't know if I have a guess. War of the Ring Collector's Edition. How much do you think it was worth? How much do you think they're asking? That's what my question is. Is that a part two? Oh, you're asking the actual monetary value? Yes, I am. The price of the most expensive non-magic board game in the marketplace. Highest. The ring is fifteen hundred. All right, Matt, your turn. Um, I'm trying to think of something weird and out of, excuse me, out of print. It's probably some crazy war game. Um, I, I'm gonna dupe Dan and say fifteen hundred and one. Oh my gosh, Matt, you finally earned a point. Yes, and it's job. just by scavenging. All right. So the game that is the most expensive on there is not a game that I am aware of. It's called The Pursuit of Harmony, a tribute to Forest C. Someone. And I think it, it's, it's a roll-and-move trivia game for two to six players. It looks and how like much it does it go for? $7,500. Really? Last I looked. That means that Smee's copy of Fireball Island is probably worth, like... At least two grand. Now, speaking of Fireball Island. All right. You might need a pen for this one, fellas. Okay. I got five games. I want you to put them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pens weren't in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, one of you has been clicking one incessantly. So at least one of you has a writing utensil. It's me this time. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. It's usually Dan. All right. Yeah, it's not usually me. Okay, I'm going to give you five games. I want you to put them in order, highest price to lowest price. These are collectory board games. Okay. Ready? Go for it. Here are the five. Merchant of Venus, the original Avalon Hill edition. Fireball Island. Hero Quest with the Barbarian expansion. <laughs> Starfarers of Catan. And the Dark Tower. I don't know how much... I don't know the value of the Dark Tower. The Dark Tower it has the big, like, electronic tower thingy. That might be be before your time. Most of these games are before my time. That's so true. Put them in order of expense. Highest price first. All right, I'm good. I'm good. All right. So what's your order, Matt? Lowest to highest. I think it's Catan, Fireball Island, Merchant of Venus, Mer- Merchant of Venus, The Dark Tower... And here, a quest for the expansion. Dan? I'm going to go highest to lowest. Of course you are. <laughs> I'm going to say hero quest, 
Dark Tower, Fireball Island, Merchant of Venus, Starfarers of Catan. Okay, well, Dan, you win this one, okay? Here's the actual order, highest to lowest. The Dark Tower, which you can find for $1,000 on eBay right now. Hero Quest with the Barbarian Expansion, $600 on eBay. Fireball Island, $475. Merchant of Venus, $250. And Starfares of Catan, $175. So Dan, does he got two right? He I got, got all of them, but he got all of them right except for the top two. He just had them reversed. He had, he had the lowest three in exact perfect order. Good job, Dan. Thanks. That's what I do. All right. Here's a Magic the Gathering question. Black Lotus. Mm-hmm. Mute. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Which one of these cards is not in the Magic the Gathering? gathering power nine okay these are the most cheaty expensive bad ass cards in the magic the gathering sets printed in 1993 to 94 okay here are your four options a black lotus b mox diamond c time walk d ancestral recall which one is not part of the power nine matt your answer the diamond dan your answer those are all in it but how many moxes were there? There were I six. I don't think there. I don't think the mox diamond was worth crap, though. I agree. All right, then you both get a point. Good job. Hey yo. What were the other ones? Pearl, sapphire, emerald, ruby, and ruby. what's the last one? Now you're just showing off. I have no idea. <laughs> oh. It was black. So. Jet was it? Jet? Oh, my yes, jet. it was jet. You're right. You're right. It's jet for sure. Been there. Bonus points. <laughs> All right, ready for the next one, guys? Let's do it. All right. Well, here's the next question. We're in the home stretch. This is the highest rated collector's edition game on BGG. You have four options: A. War of the Ring collector's edition. B. Risk 40th Anniversary Collector's Edition, C, Catan 3D Collector's Edition, and D, Puerto Rico Anniversary Edition. Let's go with the geek rating, the highest geek rating for one of these games. Puerto Rico. It's probably Puerto Rico, but I feel like War of the Rings should take it. I don't know. I'm going to say Puerto Rico, though. It was Puerto Rico. Nice. I was right. So right now... Matt, you have three points, and Dan, you have three and a half. Oh, darn. I'm so upset that you are besting me by half a point. How about I throw in a bonus question? Black Lotus. This is just for moral victory. I've clearly taken the round. I wouldn't say clearly. You have a half a point. Uh, When there's only 3.5 points, that is a a large It was a pity point. The bonus question is completely unrelated to all these collector questions. Are you ready? I'm scared as to what this could be. This is a potpourri question. Is it a potpourri? Well, it's not actual trivia. It's Uh-oh. guessing the right answer for me. So good luck. Okay. <laughs> all right. Black Lip. The best. Nope. Damn it. You lose. Dan wins. We have a winner. <laughs> And it is Dan. That's what you get for interrupting me. I'm sorry, You'll never know the question now. I'm You'll never know. This. 
You should. All right. Good show, guys. See you next week. But I want another question. Okay. What is the best Arnold Schwarzenegger comedy? Wait, wait. Ugh, this is easy. Oh, is it? Jingle oh. all the way. <laughs> Kinder- kindergarten cop. It is kindergarten cop, but it might be jingle all the way. If you no. both pick if the same not... answer, Matt, you don't have a chance at winning. Predator. If it's not kindergarten cop, it's then predator. Twins. <laughs> you both lose. It's twins. Oh, jeez. I, I just said if it wasn't. You said if it wasn't. That was your second choice. It's clearly twins. Everybody knows that. So in my book, you both lose. Well, no, technically, I still win with 3.5 points. Well, I accept my defeat via Schwarzenegger trivia. It was close, guys. We both yeah. sucked, to be fair. You, you sucked pretty close. <laughs> Dan sucked slightly less than you. I'm getting uncomfortable. Yep, that, that's Me too. how you get by in life. That's, that's how I do things. You just got to be half a point faster than your nearest opponent. So that's all we have for episode nine of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. Just a reminder that you can always reach out to us on Facebook by searching the League of Nonsensical Gamers. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter. Dan, if people wanted to find you, what could they use? Uh, they could find me on the, the League's account at League Nonsense, or my personal one is at scandalous underscore nad, N-A-D. And Tiff, where can they find you on the Twitterverse? I am at ineptgamer. Excellent. And you can find me at Cinnamon Buns, spelled phonetically. So good luck with that one. Also, feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. And head on over to the BGG Guild, guild number 2077, and start up a conversation with us. We'd love to hear what you have to say. All right. That is all we have. We can say goodbye. Toodles. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's not talk about it then. Hey, Tiff. <laughs> hey, Dad. <laughs> Are you licking the microphone again? He's always licking my microphone. Yep. Stop licking it the blue ball. Like, it does look like a giant ball. So. <laughs> it's not blue. Mine is blue. How many licks does it taste to get to the center of the blue snowball? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And we already did come back from the break. So let's talk about the discussion players versus collectors. Listen to that range. I try. I've been trying. See, if I drink four beers, I get real loose. My vocal cords are feeling lubed. (laughs) I'm good to go. You didn't like that? Lubed vocal cords? Not into that. Oh. Should I start talking about which, like... Male nerds, I think, are cute now. Sure, I'd love to hear that. I hope the I'm hottest them. male nerds out there. <laughs> Top ten list. I think we're right. up there. <laughs> the League of Nonsensical Gamers as a collective has a couple handsome guys in it. Just and a gals. couple. It's only got one gal. Ooh. Yeah, forget about me. I don't count. Oh, I was forgetting about Kel. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, delete that real quick. Cancel that. <laughs> I forgot she was in it. Yeah, delete that quick. <laughs>
trouble. Anyway, I've I just forgot she was in the it. league. I wasn't saying she wasn't cute. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> you just better stop. Hand me the shovel, then. <laughs> but, Steve, I'm busy digging. Please. <laughs>